0: When I was in the first grade, our school was part of an effort to raise awareness around Earth Day. And I don't recall a single thing really about that effort except the coloring contest that was part of it. All of us first graders were given an outlined picture with a a boat filled with trash and the trash was filling into the ocean and all around the area. And our assignment as a class was to color this picture picture, and the pictures would then be collected up and posted around the school, and there would be a first and second and third place prize for the best colorings. Third place got $10, second place $25, first place $50. First grade, that was an unheard of sum of money. Needless to say, I put forth my best effort. I colored precisely inside the lines of that boat. I picked the colors that were most realistic. Brown for the wood boat. Green for the glass bottles in the ocean. Blue for the ocean water. Two weeks later, guess what? I won. $50. To this day, I still remember the mildly delirious feeling that overcame me. And it's another sermon during stewardship when I'll tell you what that $50 did to me, (laughs) but for today, a lesson I started to pick up then, and then I think I started to pick up unconsciously in all kinds of ways as I grew up, is this. If you stay inside the lines, you will do well. If you do your homework, you'll get good grades. If you get good grades, you'll go to a good school. If you go to a good school, you'll get a good job. And all along the way, if you color inside the major lines of the law, you know, no murder, no cheating, no stealing, you'll prosper. Jesus' teaching this morning plays off something of this assumption. You've heard it said, do not murder. You've heard it said that you just need to stay inside the lines, keep the literal letter of the law, not murder anyone, and it will go well with you. But I say to you, if, if you're angry with a brother or sister, you're liable to judgment. If you insult a brother or sister, you'll be liable to the council. If you say you fool, a term in that time that, that meant uh, empty or worthless and, and was a forceful term of derision. If you say fool, you fool, you will be liable to the hell of fire. And in one fell swoop, Jesus takes a commandment that seemingly was easy to keep and not think too much about, just don't murder, to a commandment addressing one of the most central and pervasive issues of our time and our hearts, anger. to be sure, the Bible addresses anger uh, at a number of different times, and I think it'd be wise for us to step back for just a minute and consider the nuanced understanding of anger that we see in Scripture. Because anger can be good. Jesus is angry with the religious leaders when they try to stop him from healing on the Sabbath day. Jesus angrily clears the temple when he sees God's people in the the house of worship, uh, using it for unjust profit. Both Moses and Jeremiah show forth what is recorded as, as righteous anger at various points in their leadership. And nearly always in Scripture, this kind of good anger is anger directed at God's own people for their lack of faithfulness, their lack of justice, their lack of caring about the things that God cares about. It's an anger meant to wake the people back up to what God cares about, not unlike the Scripture we considered last week from Isaiah 58. But even as the Bible lifts up anger as an emotion that can be an expression of good and passionate faithfulness, It gives plenty of warning about the dangers of anger. Psalm 4.4, when you are angry, do not sin. Ponder it on your beds. Be silent. Like, go over there if that's you. Proverbs 14.17 says, a quick-tempered person does foolish things. James 1.19, everybody should be quick to listen, slow to speak, slow to become angry. And then perhaps most famously of all is the passage today, but I say to you, if you're angry with a brother or sister, you will be liable to judgment. Now scholars note that the anger about which Jesus speaks of here is of an ongoing nature. It's the kind of anger we hold on to. We savor the taste of its righteous indignation. We nourish it with justifications for being angry. We let it become bitterness. I think the Apostle Paul in Ephesians uh, 4, helpfully summarizes the tension that we're starting to hear when it comes to anger and what Scripture has to say. He writes this, be angry. I mean, there's something good and needful about the spark of a righteous anger that means you're alive, you care about something that matters. Be angry, but do not sin. Do not let the sun go down on your anger. Don't hold on. And do not make room for the devil to have a foothold in the anger Be angry, but not too long, even if you're in the right. Because many times when we are angry, we are at some level right. Really, the concern with anger is not so much who is right and who is wrong. The concern is that when that flame of anger is lit, all it takes is the smallest of breezes, A small insult floats your way, a few remarks from the political debate, an offhand comment from a fellow congregant, a certain cell phone, call, text, email, a change in health, an upset child. All it takes is for the simplest of breezes to brush upon a lit flame of anger and fan it into so much more. And nobody plans for what their anger becomes next. Words get said that can't be unsaid. Actions get done that cannot be undone. Whole marriages, households, organizations, even churches have known permanent and profound structural damage from the consuming fire of anger inflamed by a small breeze. You've heard it said, do not murder. I, I, I say to you, if all you are doing is staying inside the literal line letter of the law but you're holding anger, For a brother or sister, you're already there. You're already in the midst of the same kind of destruction that murder brings about. And of course, the problem with nourished anger is not only the destruction it does to everything around a person or a people, it's also what the anger does to the one who is angry. Like holding that cactus. My parents divorced when I was in high school, and this was particularly painful for me. It was one of the first times I really felt stuck, because I had numerous justifications from the Bible that their divorce was against God's will. They'd given me that Bible some years ago, and I went and found the verses myself, and I pointed them out. I was, I was clearly justified in my position. And I was angry that I, I did not understand how I was unable to change the situation. It was wrong. It was unfair. But now I did not spend my days with some kind of obvious seething anger amid the divorce. Quite the opposite. I was a good kid. I was a nice kid. Not a soul would have said, now there's an angry teenager. But I quietly let the fire of anger remain lit in ways I don't think I even noticed. Until a particular play that occurred in a recreation basketball league that I was part of in high school It was in a game where we were up by one point with just one second left to go in the game. The other team inbounds the ball, and the clock does not start right away. They were given an extra second. Just enough time for the other person to receive the ball, dribble it once or twice, get an immense amount of momentum from the free throw line opposite their basket, heave it 75 feet, and swish it in for the win. Top 10 ESPN play. Had anyone thought to be been filming that? But no one thought to be filming that because that's not possible when there's only one second left in the game. Shouldn't have counted. I and others went to the referee and made this point. We were angry. We were justified. The call stood. We could do nothing to change it, and I was stuck. Incomprehensibly, I raced straight over to... The large brick wall on one side of the gym and proceeded to punch it with as much force as I could muster. And I broke my hand. (laughs) The slight from the game proved the breeze that caught an already growing fire within. You see, anger murders others. It also breaks the one who's angry. As Jesus declared, much hellfire indeed is brought about by anger. What if the wrong kind of breeze swept through our day? Would it catch a lit flame? Jesus then continues his teachings with this. So when you're offering your gift at the altar, if you remember that a brother or sister has something against you, leave the gift, go. First be reconciled to your brother or sister, and then come and offer your gift. Why does Jesus tell us this little vignette, this little story after these strong words about the the dangers of of ongoing anger? Why not continue his teaching by saying, Therefore, If you're holding anger, if you're cherishing anger, if you're keeping that flame lit, stop it. Unless of course, stopping it is not the point of his teaching. The person who got second place in that first grade art contest was a friend of mine named Nicole Brown. And I'll never forget Nicole's rendition of the very same assignment because never in my short life had it crossed my mind to do anything like this. She had pulled out all kinds of pinks and purples, blues and greens, yellows, and she'd colored it beautifully and thoughtfully, but never once staying inside the lines. It was not a messy picture, it was not a lazy picture, actually quite the opposite. She had a way of making the whole picture pop with life through the use of so many vibrant colors coming together in this almost mosaic-like picture I was stunned I was stunned because I didn't understand how she had not won and I was stunned because I'd never really considered how much more beautiful a piece of artwork could be that did not color within the lines using the literal correct colors I think when Jesus shares this vignette about a person worshiping who realizes that someone's angry with them and so they first go and reconcile, I think this is Jesus coloring outside the lines. Jesus is making clear he's not interested in just teaching people to stay inside the literal lines of letter of the law and so avoid murder or even just avoid harboring anger. Yes, certainly avoiding both of those is is important to Jesus. But Jesus' primary goal is not just about avoiding all the bad stuff. His primary teaching is about proactively pursuing love. Don't just avoid murder and anger, but actively seek reconciliation, even friendship with those with whom there has been anger or division. Don't just color inside the lines and do the minimal moral thing. Color far beyond the lines and pursue love. The Presbyterian Church USA has a book of confessions, and one of the 12 confessions in there is the larger catechism first published in 1647. In a catechism, right, is a teaching document that teaches by first asking a question and then answering it. And at one point in the larger catechism, as it's teaching about the Christian faith, the questions turn to the Ten Commandments. Question, what is the Sixth Commandment? Answer, answer. The sixth commandment is, thou shalt not murder. And then listen to the next question in the catechism. What are the duties required of the sixth commandment? Not, well then how do you define murder and avoid murder? No, 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 the next question is, what are the proactive things required of the sixth commandment, do not murder? Following Jesus' lead, the Reformed tradition has long recognized that the heart of the commandments are not just about don't literally do that, but also proactively run after things in the opposite direction of murder and anger. So listen to some of the answers that the catechism gives. The duties required of the sixth commandment, do not murder. Quietness of mind. Cheerfulness of spirit. Charitable thoughts, love, compassion, gentleness, kindness, peaceable, mild, and courteous speeches and behavior, forbearance, readiness to be reconciled, patient bearing and forgiving of injuries, requiting good for evil comforting the distressed protecting and defending the innocent talk about coloring far beyond the lines of just do not murder what if our society so filled with angst and anger at any given moment what if the transformation of our society and the transformation of our very own hearts begins not just in avoiding all that Anger, but proactively going in the opposite direction. How might God have us risk coloring far outside of the expected lines? I was in Bethlehem in January of 2015 and I came across this shop selling Christmas ornaments made of glass. They were beautiful. Some of them were in the shape of doves, others, angels. Some of them were manger scenes with Mary and Joseph and baby Jesus lying between them, all of them very colorful. I drew closer, and I read the tag attached to one of the ornaments. There had been a siege of the Church of the Nativity in Bethlehem in 2002 by the Israeli army. It lasted 38 days, and and during that time, as the shooting went back and forth, there was heavy damage to Bethlehem and, and a whole lot of shattered glass lying in the streets of Bethlehem. A group there in the city decided to begin picking up the pieces of glass, and they put these pieces through a firing process where, where the jagged edges of glass had been softened and tempered, and then the pieces refashioned into Christmas ornaments. What they envisioned was a day when these ornaments could go on Christmas trees as a symbol of surprising friendship among those who once shot bullets at one another, Why not an eye for an eye? Why not take that fire of anger and and throw the shards back or make something even bigger and sharper? I did not know this when I first went into the shop, but it turns out that shop was part of a local Lutheran's church ministry. Turns out it's the church. It was the people of Jesus who were busy taking anger-inspired brokenness and transforming it into hope-inspired gifts. The church coloring far outside the lines of anyone's expectations. And truth be told, how could it be any other way for the people of Jesus Christ? For ours is a God who did not harbor anger against our sin And our evil. Rather than lash out against us and put all of us on this side of the hard line of right and wrong, Jesus goes to the cross and takes the sin of the jagged, rough edged, prickly, broken people, forgives them, and then he softens and shapes them in the kiln of the Holy Spirit. And he calls them friends. God colors outside. The lines, and we are God's mosaic. Our gathering is, what a, is a picture of what it looks like when the artist pursues a vision of reconciling love. Empowered by the Holy Spirit, may we likewise be known as a people whose lives do not merely keep inside the literal lines, but instead paint colorful and exceptional and surprising art. And one more thing, Jesus' vignette in our scripture today makes it clear we really don't need to just wait until tomorrow to get into the art studio. In our story of reconciliation that he tells, the person is in worship. They're offering a gift at the altar. When they realize there is another brother or sister with whom they need to show forth kindness or compassion or forgiveness or whatever it takes to know a reconciliation And here we are in worship. And I wonder if the Holy Spirit isn't laying upon you a name or names on your heart, even this morning. What would it look like to color outside the lines? It will be risky, it will be beautiful because love is never anything else but those.